You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Cyberspace Solarium has released its report, as promised, and they wish to make your flesh creep. Coronavirus scams and fish bait amount to what some are calling an infodemic. Some notes on Patch Tuesday, and finally, some words on the actual coronavirus epidemic. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. The U.S. Cyberspace Solarium released its report today, which includes, as foreseen, 75 recommendations grouped under six headings. First, reform the U.S. government structure and organize for cyberspace. Second, strengthen norms and non-military tools. Third, promote national resilience. Fourth, reshape the cyber ecosystem. Fifth, operationalize cybersecurity collaboration with the private sector. And finally, preserve and employ the military instrument of national power. The recommendations are framed against the background of national vulnerability to a sudden disabling cyber campaign. That possibility is established imaginatively within the report by an introductory piece of fiction, a warning from tomorrow, in which legislative staffers working from a Rosalind, Virginia high-rise survey the cyber-induced devastation across the Potomac, with a sense of despair and futility. The river itself is discolored red with the release of the wrong chemicals from upstream treatment plants. The city's low-lying areas were flooded from reservoirs drained when their sensors were hacked. Drone wreckage litters the mall, and so on. The story speaks of Capitol Hill, and of course Roslyn is across the Potomac from the actual Capitol Hill. But clearly the writers are dealing with the geography of the spirit, not prosaic real estate. Cyberspace, as the solarium sees it, is an incipient dystopia. We quote, While America looks forward to the potential of cyberspace and associated technologies to improve the quality of human life, threats continue to grow at an accelerating pace. America is facing adversary nation-states, extremists, and criminals that are leveraging emerging technologies to an unprecedented degree. Authoritarian states seek to control every aspect of life in their societies and export this style of government, in which surveillance trumps liberty, to the rest of the world. There is no public square, only black boxes proliferating propaganda and organizing economic activity to benefit the few at the expense of the many. Rogue states, extremists, and criminals thrive in the dark web, taking advantage of insecure network connections and a market for malware to prey on victims. End quote. There's no mystery as to the identity of the principal nation-state adversaries this time around, either. They're the familiar four, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. The non-state actors the report cites are also familiar. Criminal gangs, hacktivist organizations, lone wolves. 
Like the report of the original Cold War Solarium, which considered nuclear strategy, the Cyberspace Solarium used three teams to come up with competing approaches to the challenge it was set. Also like the original, the new Solarium's recommendations concentrate heavily on deterrence and resilience. The commissioners offer some big ideas to get the conversation started. These include the conviction that deterrence in cyberspace is possible, that such deterrence relies on a resilient economy, and will require government reform, that the private sector must up its own security game, and that election security must be given high priority. Deterrence would involve defending forward, would be layered, the report says, designed to shape behavior, deny benefits, and impose costs. Thus, prospective attackers who work the calculus of cyber conflict would be dissuaded first by international entanglement and international norms. The low probability of deriving any benefit from an attack would further persuade them that offensive action would be largely futile. And finally, in the third level, the sure prospect of retaliation, punishment, the imposition of costs, would convince them that it wasn't in their interest to attack. The logic of deterrence, the report says, hasn't substantially changed in more than half a century. Josh Mayfield is from security firm Risk IQ, and he joins us with insights on what he describes as the coming age of conquest and information control. One of the things that's probably underemphasized is the motivating imperative that attackers feel uh, that really drives a lot of their behavior. I mean, these are belief-generating, goal-seeking animals, as all humans are. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that's necessary is to understand what those motives are. And one of the things that I had mentioned that got this conversation going was that rewind the clock 20 years ago or so, and the the main driver, the main motive was notoriety within someone's own social clique, right? Uh, the notoriety and the esteem I would get among my peers. And that motive is, gave way to a more financially driven motive, uh, primarily snatch and grab. So let me break in steel and then go pawn it off somewhere else. And now we see a another wave, another epoch uh, that I see and that we see at Risk IQ is that it's moved into conquest. And so now, uh, no, I'm, I don't just want to break in and steal and take away and sell to someone else who might want this this piece of, of digital material, whether it's, again, a security number or a resource itself. Mm. We're seeing a mindset shift where instead of trespassing like it used to be, you know, notoriety among your group, oh, you snuck in, oh, you found the weaknesses, oh, aren't you extraordinary, to financial gain, uh, and now all the way to uh, to direct conquest. Well, I mean, let, let's explore that a bit. I mean, g- given um, what you're saying here, that uh, that we've, we've, we've reached this point of, of professionalism and the way that the bad guys are coming at us, what is the appropriate response these days then? How do organizations best prepare themselves for defense? The best way to prepare yourself for defense, especially in an age where there's the baseline of savvy is much higher. The people that are going into the cyber criminal profession are people that are coming in with a a higher baseline. And so you have that sophistication and skill set that's already being developed. And then when you add to it the opportunity and the motive that drives all of us, but then the opportunity, because the flank is open, it's a, a short hop, skip, and a jump for someone to enter that criminal behavior. And so when you have just more of them that have more skills and they have more opportunity to to take advantage of a weakness because there are more weaknesses that are going unnoticed, 
That's the part that organizations can control. We can't change the motives and the drives of an attacker. We can't even change what their skill sets happen to be. But what we can do is we can reduce their opportunity. We can neutralize that tendency to go from esteem to theft to conquest. We can be a very inhospitable environment for them to try to tiptoe into because we have eyes everywhere and we can see all of that. Risk and threat work in cybersecurity is a game of probabilities. What we can focus on, what we can put our attention on is lowering the probability of exploit. And the best way to do that is by seeing all those places where it could happen and mitigating any of the risks and exposures before they actually are hit. And I would just say that that that's one of the things to really focus on. We can do a lot of, of work trying to interpret and understand an APT. We can look into nation states and we can imagine worst case scenarios. But in reality, what, what ends up getting hit is the exposure you didn't see coming that was just opportunistically available for an attacker at the right time. That's Josh Mayfield from Risk IQ. Take the coronavirus seriously, but stay alert to COVID-19-themed scams. Know before, Risk IQ and others share warnings about this trend. It's the usual sad, all too often sadly persuasive stuff. Buy this cure, buy this product, donate to this charity, and all will be well. Yesterday was Patch Tuesday, and Microsoft addressed a total of 115 vulnerabilities, 26 of which are rated critical, 88 are considered important, and one is held to be moderately severe. The good news is that none of them appear to be currently exploited in the wild. Mozilla also released updates for Firefox and Firefox ESR yesterday. Their patches resolved 12 distinct vulnerabilities. The most serious Firefox vulnerability addressed exposes unpatched systems to arbitrary code execution. We heard from security firm Ivanti on March's round of patches. Their recommendation is to give priority to Windows OS, Microsoft Office, and browser patches this month. Adobe did not issue its usual round of patches, HelpNet Security reports. It's not immediately known whether Adobe will push fixes in the near term or not. And finally, at least two of our industry's own have come down with COVID-19, the coronavirus strain that's been the source of so much concern. Exabeam says that two of its people have come down with COVID-19, and we wish them a swift and complete recovery. It's not clear when they contracted the virus, but both of them were at Exabeam's booth in the Moscone Center last month. Symptoms appeared after their return from the conference. If you were at RSAC, Exabeam urges that you take whatever steps you find prudent to ensure you're not affected. For their part, RSAC says they've been monitoring the outbreak, but haven't yet found any clear link to the conference. Nonetheless, the conference organizers urge anyone who attended to refer to CDC recommendations concerning testing, treatment, and prevention of COVID-19. The CDC emphasizes that the best prevention is to avoid infection, and the measures they recommend are familiar from advice given during flu season. Wash your hands frequently, avoid places where you might be exposed, and so on. Vox has a summary of advice from public health experts on what individuals and organizations can do to slow the rate at which the virus spreads. Their headline sums it up. Cancelled events and self-quarantines save lives. The cases of Exabeam's people aren't trivial. One of those affected is hospitalized in guarded condition, CRN reports. Spare a thought or a prayer for two of our colleagues and their families and stay safe.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, got interesting story you have to share this week. Uh, this is uh, some uh, good stuff come out of, out of the FBI. Yes, uh, it's a mixed bag of stuff. It's interesting and it's good, and I, I'm not, I don't mean to uh, to disparage the FBI here. I think what they're doing here is great. Yeah. Uh, but they the headline, this is from CyberScoop, it says, an FBI unit recovered $300 million mm. uh, of reported cybercrime from losses last year, but that's out of $3.5 billion in losses. <laughs> so it's less than 10% of the money that was lost they've recovered. However, yeah. $300 million is nothing to sneeze at. No, um, no, not at all. And not at all. they've spoken with uh, Tanya Ugaretz, who is a deputy assistant director from the cyber division. And she was talking about the, uh, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, the IC3, that responded to more than 467,000 complaints in 2019. Hmm. Now, there were 351,000 complaints in 2018. Hmm. So that is a huge increase. Yeah. And something that I find amazing about this is every one of these complaints gets analyzed by a person, hmm. right? That's amazing. That is amazing. I mean, that, that you can get more than uh, close to half a million complaints and every one of them gets examined by a person at some point. In time. I just, I'm just trying to imagine the staffing that requires. Yeah, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Some interesting statistics in this. Of the $3.5 billion that was stolen last year, 1.7 of that 
$1.7 billion of that was taken from business email compromise scams. Mm. Now, these are very sophisticated scams where people are in your email. We've talked about them on Hacking Humans. We've talked about them here. Yeah. They're watching the conversation, and when, when the time is right, they inject a, uh, a message into the, into the conversation that says, oh, by the way, we're changing our banking details, and here's the new banking information. Mm. And then the money gets sent to the scammers or to the, to the, to the criminals, and off it goes. And then it's very difficult to, re- to recoup, recoup that loss, particularly sure. if you're doing a wire transfer. Yeah. They, they talk about a particular case here where someone uh, transferred $785,000. Yeah. This is a case out of New Jersey. Someone who was buying a home believed they were transferring almost $800,000 to a lender, but was actually sending it to an imposter masquerading as a bank. Hmm. Uh, when this happens, it's absolutely devastating uh, because that transaction is not happening again. Because hmm. if you can't get that money back then you don't have another $800,000 lying around to buy a home. Right, right, right. I imagine this was a down payment on a, on a, on a large property. Yeah. But, you know, you don't, you're not going to have that money laying around again. This happens at, at smaller scales, too. We've seen this happen where people lose down payments of like $20,000 that they're putting down on a house that cost $150,000. Sure. And these are people who have worked for years to save up that $20,000. Yeah. And now it's gone. And now they can't buy a house. Which is, you know, one of the one of the great things that we like to do here in America is we like to have home ownership. Yeah, right. They say uh, in this article that uh, in this case the recovery asset team was able to get six hundred sixty-five thousand dollars of the money back. Right, which is a great ratio for that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. evidently, they, there was also an insurance policy that'll help uh, make up the difference. Well, that's good so. news. It is good news. Unfortunately, very unusual, I think, in it these is. sort of cases. It is. It, uh, this, this person transferring $800,000 probably is, is aware of the risk in doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, they probably have insurance for this purpose. Good for them. But again, like I said, when this happens to someone smaller, some first-time homebuyer who might be 25 years old, doesn't have a lot of money, it's devastating. Yeah, well, a good reminder that uh, folks like uh, these teams at the FBI are out there fighting the good fight, and yeah, they are able to claw back some of this money, and, but uh, not as much as you'd hope. Yeah, not as much as you'd hope, but they're, I think they're getting better at it, mm-hmm. and I think there's ways to make this better with policy and, uh, and checks and balances in the system, mm-hmm. as well as uh, criminal prosecution. And mm. I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more of that over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, interesting story. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.